Chapter 23 of The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andrew Frame. The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls by Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter 23 The Monks and the People in the Time of the Crusades. In the early days of the Crusades, when the soldiers of the cross were fighting in the east, many interesting things were happening among the people left at home. We've seen that in all the countries of Western Europe, there were people who were anxious to live better lives. New monasteries and convents were built where men and women who wanted to pray and live in peace could go. Especially in France this happened, partly perhaps because the feudal lords were so powerful in France, while the king had not yet got much power. Great new orders of monks rose up, for sometimes a monk, seeing the faults in the older monasteries, would set up a new monastery with new rules by which to keep from these faults. One of the greatest of these new orders was one founded by St. Bruno. At first, Bruno was head of the school belonging to the cathedral at the French town called Reims. In those days, there were no schools, except those belonging to the cathedrals and monasteries, and as a rule, only boys who were going to be priests or monks were taught to read and write. Bruno was very good and pious, and when the new Archbishop of Reims, who was named Manassas, did wrong things, Bruno scolded him. But the Archbishop was very angry, and Bruno had to go away from Reims and hide for a long time. Then, when Manassas died, the priests at the cathedral chose Bruno to be their Archbishop, but the French king, Philip I, would not agree to this. Reims was in that part of France where the French king had real power. Philip was a very wicked king, and Pope Hildebrand had told him so plainly, while later Pope Urban excommunicated him because he sent away his Queen Bertha after he had been married to her for 20 years and took another wife. Naturally, Philip did not want an archbishop who was a saint like Bruno. However, Bruno did not mind at all, but went into a wild part of the country near a town called Grenoble and built there a new monastery. He made quite a new rule for his monks. Instead of doing everything together, like the earlier monks eating in a large room called the refectory and sleeping in another large room called the dormitory, St. Bruno and his monks each had a little house of his own. Each monk lived and ate and slept in his own house and only went with the other monks at those times when they prayed in the church. The monks never spoke and lived the very strictest of lives. The monastery which St. Bruno built near Grenoble was called the Grand Chartreuse. Afterwards, he went to Calabria and Italy and built two more charter houses, as monasteries of this order were called. The order was called the Carthusian Order, and soon it spread over the countries of Western Europe. It never became less strict like many other orders. There is a Carthusian monastery in the south of England even now, where the monks live exactly the same kind of life that St. Bruno and his monks lived 900 years ago. There were lay brothers, also in the order, who did not spend so much time in saying prayers, but did the work of the monastery and grew things on the land. The monks of the Grand Chartreuse found out how to make a certain kind of wine, which is called Chartreuse, and nobody else has ever found out exactly how it's made. There was another great order of monks, which was begun about the same time as the Carthusians. This was the great Cistercian order, which also began in France. A holy monk named Robert set up a Benedictine monastery at Molem in the north of Burgundy. He tried to make his monks keep the rule of St. Benedict properly, 
but they thought he was too strict and would not. So, very sadly, Robert left them with just a few of the monks and went to a lonely place called Cito in the south of France. He began another monastery there. The Great St. Bernard At first, there were only Robert and his few friends. One of these was named Stephen Harding and was an Englishman. Afterwards, he was made a saint. Soon people began to hear about the splendid lives which the monks of Cito lived, and one day there came to the monastery a young French nobleman named Bernard. He had with him thirty of his relations, and he begged that they might all become monks. This Bernard was the great Saint Bernard, who became the most important man of his time. So many men came to be monks at Cito that the monastery would not hold them, and so little bands of monks were always going away to set up new monasteries in other places. St. Bernard himself did this and became head of a monastery at Clairvaux. He is often called St. Bernard of Clairvaux. But all the monasteries of the Cistercian order were under the abbot of Citeaux, and he in his turn had to take the advice of the abbots of the four other chief monasteries of the order. One of these was Clairvaux. The Cistercian monks gave up the black robe of the Benedictines and wore white habits. They're often called the white monks, though the Carthusians and some others of the new orders wore white too. The Cistercians always built their monasteries in wild country places far from the towns. For instance, when they came to England soon after the year 1100, they set up many of their monasteries in the wild districts of Yorkshire, and soon they turned these places into the most beautiful spots in the country. For the Cistercians were always very clever in growing things, and in many places, too, they covered the land with sheep. The wool of the sheep was sold to be made into cloth. The Cistercians often became very rich, but they were very kind to the poor and were not allowed to spend much money, even on their churches. At first, especially, their churches were built very plainly and were not allowed to have towers or spires because these were not necessary. There were no silver or gold crosses in their churches, but only painted crosses made of wood. But though the Cistercian monks lived such strict and quiet lives, they soon spread all over Europe. St. Bernard was greater, indeed, than any pope, and the popes and bishops of the time were glad of his advice on all sorts of things. He lived a very strict life indeed, and ate so little food that after a time he became so weak that he was sick every time he took any food at all. But this did not prevent his praying and preaching. He traveled through France and Italy, preaching to the people who crowded to see and hear him. When once more an anti-pope was struggling with the real pope, it was St. Bernard who got the anti-pope to give in, and so made peace in the church. St. Bernard was very severe with anybody who was against the church in any way. In his time, when people were thinking more and more about religion, there were some men and women who began to believe things which the church said were wrong. These people were called heretics and were sometimes punished and even killed. St. Bernard had no mercy on such people and was always anxious to have them punished, for he thought that they did much harm to the people by teaching them the wrong things. There were many heretics in the south of France. There was one man called Pierre Dubris, who was a priest, but had done something very wrong and so was not allowed to live any longer as a priest. He wandered about the south of France preaching against the priests, and saying that what they taught was wrong. He made a great bonfire of crosses and statues, which he said it was wrong to use. But the people were so angry they took him and burned him alive. There was another man, too, 
named Peter Waldez, a rich merchant belonging to the French city of Lyon. He was excommunicated, but long after his death his followers wandered about France and Italy preaching against the church. These heretics were sometimes called the poor men of Lyon. The chief heretics in the south of France were called the Albigenses because Albi was one of their chief towns. St. Bernard was full of sorrow and anger against the heretics, and he blamed it all on one man. This was the famous Abelard, whose life story is one of the saddest and strangest in all history. He was born in Brittany, and like St. Bernard himself, he belonged to a noble family. While he was still a young boy, people saw that he was going to be very clever. In those days, the schools were still joined to the monasteries and cathedrals, but some of the schools had become more famous than others, and when the news spread that a good teacher was to be found at any particular place, scholars would crowd to his school. Abelard, when he was a young man, went from one great school to another. Before he was twenty, he was at the school belonging to the Cathedral of Notre Dame at Paris, listening to the lectures of a famous teacher called William of Champeaux. But Abelard soon showed himself much cleverer than his master. He asked questions which William could not answer, and soon the students left their old master and followed Abelard from place to place. At last, he set up his school on the Mont Saint-Geneviève, the famous hill in Paris looking down on the cathedral. Abelard's teaching was very clear. He said that people must not believe what they were told just because they were told but that students should see the reasons of the things they believed. He said that the older teachers had not really tried to make things clear, but lighted a fire not to give light, but to fill the house with smoke. After a while, William of Champeau found that he had no pupils at all, and so gave up teaching in disgust. Abelard was afterward made a canon, as a priest belonging to a cathedral was called of Notre Dame at Paris. One of the older canons named Fulbert had a young niece living in his house. Her name was Heloise, and she was very beautiful and very clever. She could read Latin and even Greek, and Abelard used to help her in her studies. After a while, Abelard and Heloise loved each other very much, and in the end, they were married to each other. Fulbert was very angry about it all because a priest was forbidden to get married. He was still more angry when Heloise told people that they were not married. She did this because she was afraid that it would do harm to Abelard if people knew that he had married her. In the end, Eloise became a nun, and Abelard fled away from the anger of her uncle to a monastery. He left the monastery of Saint-Denis outside Paris because he quarreled with the other monks. Even now that he was a much sadder and wiser man, he could not help teaching what he thought was the truth. He made the monks very angry by saying that some of the things they said about their patron saint were not true but only old tales. He still gave lectures, and crowds followed him. After a while, he set up another monastery in a lonely spot, but left it again, and Heloise then went with some nuns and lived the rest of her life in this convent of the Paraclete, as it was called. She always loved Abelard, and wrote the most beautiful letters to him, which we may still read. St. Bernard hated the teaching of Abelard, not so much for the things he said as for the independent spirit which he encouraged. To St. Bernard, his questioning and arguing about the things which the church taught seemed little better than the teaching of heretics like Pierre Dubris or the poor men of Lyon. At last, St. Bernard got a council of bishops to meet at the town of Sens in France, and they said that Abelard's teaching was heresy. Abelard appealed to the Pope, that is, he would not agree that he was wrong, 
and offered to go to Rome and let the Pope judge the case. On his way, he stopped at the monastery of Cluny, which then had for its abbot a great and good man called Peter the Venerable. Here, Abelard became very ill, and Peter, although he was as devoted to the church and its teaching as St. Bernard himself, was very gentle and kind to Abelard. Indeed, Abelard begged to be received as a monk of Cluny, and very soon afterwards, he died. Heloise asked that his body might be buried at her convent of the Paraclete, and so it was. Years afterward, when she died, an old woman, her body was buried beside that of the man she had loved all her life. Afterwards, they were moved from place to place for different reasons, but now they rest in one grave, in the great cemetery of Père Lachaise at Paris, and there visitors may see it any day. Some of Abelard's pupils became the greatest teachers of the time and were honored by the church, for although they taught the same things as Abelard, they taught in a different way. But one of Abelard's pupils, a man called Arnold of Brescia, a town in North Italy where he was born, had a very sad ending indeed. He was a canon regular, that is to say he belonged to a church where the canons lived like monks, although they did the work of ordinary priests. Arnold was very discontented with the church as it was. He said the priests should not have any money at all, but should live on what the people gave them. He said, too, that it was not right that the Pope should rule the city of Rome. It was quite right, he said, that the Pope should rule the whole church in religious things, but in things of this world he should have no power. He went to Rome and got the people to rebel against the Pope and set up a government of their own. One Pope fled away from Rome altogether, and for a time, Arnold of Brescia got his way. But when the English Pope, Adrian IV, had crowned Frederick Barbarossa, the Emperor took Arnold of Brescia prisoner and gave him up to the Pope. He was tried for heresy and found guilty. He was killed and his body was burnt. The ashes were thrown into the river Tiber for fear the people who had followed him and loved him should carry them away and keep them as relics of a saint. Two years before St. Bernard himself had died, he had called Arnold the armor-bearer of his master Goliath, meaning Abelard. St. Bernard was the greatest man of his age. His one fault was his severity to men like these, but this did not come from any cruelty, but because he was afraid of the harm they might do to the church and the people. Naturally, St. Bernard was very gentle and tender. He wrote some beautiful hymns in Latin which are still sung in the Catholic Church. They've been put into English and are sung in other churches, too. England After the Conquest We've seen how English dukes and kings took part in the Crusades. The English people, too, shared in all the changes which were going on in the other countries of Western Europe. Monks from the new orders came to England, and monasteries of Cistercians, Carthusians, and regular canons were spread all over England. England had her saints, too, in the 12th century, the two greatest were St. Anselm and St. Thomas Becket. St. Anselm was a monk from the same Abbey of Beck in Normandy, from which William the Conqueror had brought Archbishop Lanfranc. Lanfranc died soon after the Conqueror's son, William Rufus, or the Red, became king. The Red King was not only strict like his father, but he was wicked and cruel. For a long time he would not have a new archbishop at all, but he became ill and was then so frightened that God would punish him that he asked Anselm to be archbishop. Anselm was very gentle and good. When he was abbot of Beck, the other monks were not always pleased, for if he saw poor and hungry people, he would give away the food in the monastery, never troubling about the fact there would be nothing left for himself and his monks to eat. 
Anselm did not want to be Archbishop of Canterbury. He knew that as soon as the Red King was well again, he would forget all about God and would be cruel once more to the church and the people, and he thought that he would never be strong enough to struggle with such a king. He said that it would never do for a poor sheep like himself to be put to the plow with a wild bull like Rufus, instead of the two strong oxen, William the Conqueror and Lanfranc, who had worked together so well to make the English church better. But the bishops made him give in, and almost carried him to the church to be made archbishop. Everything happened just as St. Anselm expected. When the Red King got well again, he behaved just as badly as ever. And in the end, St. Anselm fled away to France, and stayed there till the Red King died. Then his brother, Henry I, who was called Beauclerc, or the Scholar, became king. He was a clever man and a good king, and he wrote and asked St. Anselm to come back, like a father, to his son Henry and the English people. He came, and together Henry and he did all they could to make the people and the priests better. Priests had been forbidden to get married, but in the days before the Norman Conquest, nearly all priests had wives, but now this was strictly forbidden. Henry himself and his wife, good Queen Maud, gave a great deal of money to set up new monasteries. The king and the archbishop had one quarrel about investitures, the thing which the emperor and the pope were quarreling about at the same time. In England, it was soon settled. Bishops were to have the ring and crozier given to them by the archbishop, but were to do homage for their lands to the king. The struggle was settled between the pope and the emperor in the same way a few years later. Henry's only son was drowned as he was sailing from France to England in the white ship. The prince had given the sailors a great deal of beer to drink in his honor, and the nobles and ladies had danced on the deck of the ship in the moonlight, but the sailors were not paying attention to their work, and though it was a beautifully still and clear night, they let the ship strike against a rock. It was wrecked and everyone was drowned, except one poor butcher who clung on to a floating piece of wood. When Henry heard of the death of his son, he was broken-hearted, and people said that he never smiled again. He got the nobles to promise that they would have his daughter Matilda for queen when he died. The English had never had a queen to rule them without a king before, and some of the nobles broke their promise and crowned Henry's nephew, Stephen, king. Then for nearly twenty years, Matilda and Stephen fought. Stephen was a weak man, and the nobles did just what they liked. They built strong castles all over England and fought with each other. The people lived in misery, and the monks who wrote their chronicles, the only books of history which there were in those days, give long and terrible stories of the sufferings of the poor people when the cruel nobles took all they had from them and prevented them from growing things on the land. It was the only time that the feudal lords had things their own way in England, and the people could understand what the French and German people suffered until strong kings saved them from the nobles. In the end, it was settled that Matilda should give up her right to the crown, but that her son, Henry, should be king when Stephen died. And so it was. Henry II was a strong king. He soon put an end to the disorders of feudalism and made all the nobles pull down most of the castles which they had built in the time of Stephen. He tried to bring order in the church too, and it was this which brought about a great quarrel with Thomas Becket, who was now looked upon as one of England's greatest saints. Before William the Conqueror came to England, priests and other people had always been tried and punished for doing wrong things by the same judges. But William had said that the church should have courts of its own and priests should be tried in them only. This had been done. 
But the punishments in the church courts were not so severe as in the other courts. In those days, everyone who could read was called a clerk and could say that he would be tried in the church courts. Henry thought this was bad, for clerks could even commit murder and only have the easy punishments given by the church courts. So he wanted to have clerks tried first in the church courts, and if they were found guilty, he said that they should be tried again in the ordinary courts and be punished just like other people. Becket, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, said this was not fair. Becket had at first been Henry's Chancellor, and had been so lively and fond of pleasure and so friendly with the king that Henry thought that if he made him Archbishop, he could have things all his own way in the church. But he found out his mistake. Becket did not want to be Archbishop, but once he had said yes, he made up his mind to live like a saint. He gave up all his old amusements and spent his life in work and prayer. When Henry tried to get him to agree to his new arrangements for the church, there was a terrible quarrel, and Becket, like Anselm before him, fled over the seas to be safe and peaceful. After six years, he was allowed to come back. Henry was in France and heard there that Becket had punished some of the bishops for doing things without his permission while he was away. Henry flew into a terrible fit of anger and said, Is there nobody who will rid me of this insolent priest? Four of his knights who heard him immediately went out, crossed the sea to England, and as the archbishop was in his cathedral just before Vespers or Evensong, they attacked him, knocking him down dead with his brains dashed out on the stone floor. When the monks of the cathedral took up his body to make it ready to be buried, they found that the archbishop wore under all his splendid robes a shirt made of prickly hair, which he always wore to do penance for his sins. The people honored him as a saint, and later he was called a saint by the church. Henry was full of horror when he heard the news. He often had these terrible fits of anger and said things which he did not mean. When he got back to England, he wanted to do penance at the archbishop's tomb in the cathedral. He felt that he had committed a great sin, and he must have remembered, too, that Thomas Becket had once been his dear friend. He knelt at the tomb, dressed only in a shirt. He got the monks to scourge him with a whip, and then knelt alone, praying at the tomb during the whole night. For hundreds of years after this, pilgrims came in crowds to pray at the tomb of St. Thomas Becket, and it was soon covered with their offerings of gold and jewels, and became the richest shrine in England. After this, Henry did not dare to interfere with the church courts, but in time, the worst kinds of crime, whether by priests or people, came to be tried in the ordinary courts. The Great Charter there was another struggle between an English king and the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is even more important than the story of Thomas Becket. After the death of Henry II, England was ruled by Richard of the Lionheart, the great knight and crusader. He died soon, and his wicked brother John became king after him. John was a handsome man and clever, but he cared for no one but himself. He was very cruel, and once when a noble rebelled against him, he starved the man's wife and child to death. He made the people pay great sums of money in taxes and spent it on his own pleasures. Another thing which made the English people very angry was that John let the French king win Normandy from him. This seemed a great disgrace, but after this the English kings thought more of England and less of Normandy and stayed more in England instead of always sailing over to France. John had a great quarrel with the Pope. This Pope was Innocent III, the greatest since Hildebrand. There was a quarrel between the king and the monks of Canterbury about choosing an archbishop. 
and in the end, the Pope chose one himself. This was a good priest named Stephen Langton. John said he would not have him for an archbishop, and then the Pope put all of England under an interdict. This meant that the churches were closed. There could not be any services. Babies could not be baptized, and men and women could not get married. All this seemed very dreadful to the people. For five years, John would not let Stephen Langton come to England. Then the Pope said he should be king no longer. This terrified John, and he gave in. The interdict was taken off the country. John gave up his crown and took it back from a cardina who took the place of the Pope. Stephen Langton came and was made Archbishop. He immediately began to help the nobles to force King John to rule better. They wrote down many things which the king was to promise to do, and these promises were afterwards called the Great Charter. The nobles got together an army and marched to meet the king at London, but he fled to Windsor. At last he saw he must give in, and at a place nearby called Runnymede, he signed the Great Charter. But he never meant to keep his promises. When he had signed the charter and the nobles had gone, he threw himself on the ground, shrieking in anger. Afterwards, he got Pope Innocent to set him free from his promise. Then the nobles said they would take Louis, the son of the French king, to be king of England instead of John. A French army came to England, but soon John died. He had been nearly drowned in crossing the wash, and his crown and jewels were lost in the water with his other luggage. Afterwards, he was ill and made himself worse by eating fruit and drinking cider, and so died. The nobles then joined together and made John's baby son, Henry, king. It was said that he was crowned with his mother's bracelet. There was much trouble sometimes after this, but after the Great Charter, no English king ever dared again to treat the English people so badly. And it was chiefly Stephen Langton whom the English people had to thank for the signing of the charter. So we see how in England, just as in other countries of Europe at that time, the monks and priests took a leading part in history. In the century which followed, we shall see greater kings and soldiers and greater saints still. End of chapter 23. The Monks and the People in the Time of the Crusades.